Welcome to Green Talk, a podcast by Green Farmers of Ontario. I'm Megan McKimmy. And I'm Rachel Telford. We are joined today on the podcast by Owen Roberts, uh, and he is from the University of Guelph, but some of you might know him as the Urban Cowboy, and uh, we're going to talk to you about a lot of other exciting things you do too. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity, Megan. Great. And and Rachel. Um, and I think we'll just start off. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? So I'm an, uh, I'm an agricultural journalist, and I work at the University of Guelph. I'm the Director of Research Communications. That's my title. But what I mostly do is extension, what they used to call extension, but would now call knowledge mobilization. And that's the, that's the act of getting information from a source, like a university, to a user like a farmer. Um, so background-wise, I uh, so I went to uh, I went to a two-room schoolhouse out near <laughs> Mitchell's Bay <laughs> way back this when. This sounds like one of those stories you hear from you know talking to the old guys <laughs> around the coffee shop. It's like back in my day. When yeah. <laughs> well, I'm trying not to say that, but it is true. It, it is. It is true. It's uh, that's the way it was back then, and uh, eventually I ended up. I went to Wallsburg. Uh, high school, and then to the University of uh, Windsor for a communications degree, and then I have a master's degree from Guelph in extension and a doctorate of education from Texas Tech and Texas A&M University. So not growing up on a farm, how did you decide that you wanted to make agriculture your focus of your communications efforts? Yeah, well, I, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I worked on farms all through that's what that's what people did down in and I think still do to some extent in that in that area worked on farms all my uh, teenage years most of my teenage years anyway when I wasn't playing in a band to try to make uh, $25 a night <laughs> I was uh, I was working in fields and this is when they still had sugar beets uh, in southwestern Ontario so I hoed hoed beans and hoed beets and uh, did a lot of those types of things but I came to become an agricultural journalist after I became a journalist. I started out like every other journalist uh, on the ambulance chasing circuit and uh, covering meetings and that type of thing. I lived in Alberta for a few years and I worked at a magazine that had a, had a division. It was much like Time Magazine. They actually got sued by Time Magazine because they looked a little bit too much like Time Magazine. <laughs> wow. And one of their sections was called The Land. And a reportership came up for the land section, and uh, they came into the newsroom. The editor came into the newsroom and said, uh, so who would like to write agriculture stories? And no one, including me, put their <laughs> hand up because... This is this is going back quite a few years ago, and it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't cool, it wasn't hip, it hmm. wasn't um, mainstream to write about agriculture. And I was a very young journalist at the time, and I still kind of wanted to do all those all those uh, things that were deemed exciting. And they said to me, "Well, you're from a rural area, right?" And I said, "Yeah." They <laughs> said, "Okay, then you're the agricultural journalist." <laughs> oh, okay. Stringent you know, qualifications for the job. Well, <laughs> yeah, the fact that I could, I could write and I was from a rural area, I guess, meant that I would know about agriculture. But that turned in to be, it, it turned out to be the most exciting beat in Alberta, well, in most provinces. Agriculture, and 
nobody really knew this at the time, at least not journalistically, how big and how complex and how exciting some of these stories were. In Alberta, if, you, uh, if you're not writing about oil and gas as a natural resource, you're writing about agriculture. And so I would be getting all these plain brown envelopes sent to me from some unnamed source <laughs> because I worked for a magazine called Alberta Report, and it covered the entire province. And it was a very strong pro-Western magazine. So it just had, there was just an abundance of really good stories. And, you know, first name basis with, um, with the premier, because the premier understood, it was Peter Lougheed at the time, and he understood the importance of agriculture and was, was interested in, uh, in his cabinet and uh, the people of Alberta knowing the importance of agriculture. And there was people like him that were real visionaries that, made uh, kind of brought agriculture along into the mainstream so that was a that was a great in for me and it really helped me with my understanding of of national politics to work there to come from Ontario to work in Alberta and be so immersed in ag politics for a few years and then get the opportunity uh, about seven years later I guess to come back to Guelph for this job at the University of Guelph which at the time was a one-year contract 32 years ago <laughs> just to well, see just, just to, to see. see if and this was very much attached to the uh, uh, the real foundational um, program that we have at Guelph the partnership it's now called an alliance with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture Food and Rural Affairs for uh, for research and that's what this job was it was a let, let's see if we can get a journalist in here said the university with support from OMAFRA. Let's see if we can get a journalist in here to write about all the interesting research that's going on. And let's see if there's an uptake by the public for it. Because the farm farm press has always been very supportive of uh, the university and of the alliance of the agreement. But uh, broadly, it was not really all that well known. Mm-hmm. And there was so many consumer issues that are attached to uh, to agricultural issues, so they said, uh, "Yeah, see if somebody's interested in this." And so I was, I was interested in coming back to Ontario and uh, knew somebody that knew somebody, and one thing led to another, and I competed for this job and got it on the one year on the one year contract. And then things worked out. <laughs> it turns out, <laughs> yes, indeed, there was a big appetite in the media for stories that were that were understandable about agricultural research. As long as, of course, as a journalist, you could bring out the so what and who cares. And that's always what we have to pursue as journalists, as you know, is the so what and who cares of the story. But it's not very hard to make an agriculture story a so what story. Because the the who cares is consumers. Consumers can be made to care about agriculture with every story we do because it's not hard to trace the uh, connection between agriculture and consumers. So that was fun, and that's uh, and that led to the development of our Spark program. Mm-hmm. I became I became familiar with the student newspaper, the Ontarian, which if you've gone to Guelph, you might have mixed feelings about. <laughs> you know, do they support agriculture? Well, you know, it, it, once people know about agriculture, they're much more likely to become supportive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got involved in the board of directors of the Ontarian, and there was two writers there who saw what I was doing, writing about research and uh, science, and they said, do you, think we, do you think we could do what you do? 
And I said, well, I don't know. I've only been here by this time, two years. So any, everything is new and everything is possible. So let's give it a try. So again, we started Spark on a six-month trial. And that was 30 years ago. Wow. And it turns out that students also, and these aren't Aggie students. Uh, some of them have been. But these are students who come from a broad, uh, broad walk of uh, academia have an interest in writing about agriculture hmm. and food because they too come when they speak to researchers, which is what they do, they go and speak just like a reporter would to a researcher and talk about uh, how can we make how can we make this research of yours understandable? <laughs> help me help you. And right. do you offer any of those students like a crash course, course and say like genetics? Because I know when I first started here at Grain Farmers of Ontario, um, we used to do a research insert in the magazine. And part of that was highlighting um, the projects that we were investing in. And I remember one of the first things I did was with Dr. Ishvan Rashkin at mm. Guelph. And it was on breeding. Breeding and genetics is always <laughs> like, I was like, okay, not coming from an egg background, not coming from a science degree because I have a journalism degree. Um I, I sent him back the article and he's like, good effort. And I'm like, is that like a C minus? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> but, you know, I didn't. But sometimes I think when you're writing about research and you put it into what you think is understandable terms, you, you almost go a bit too far the other way where researchers are like, well, you kind of you kind of missed the mark a bit in terms of what they were actually doing. So how do the students, especially the new ones, cope with that sort of disparity between their knowledge and the researchers that they're talking to? Well, we always try to underline to the researchers, and you'll know this from your journalistic background, who is your audience? And once you figure out who your audience is, and once your source figures out who your audience is, I think the terminology and the conversation changes a bit. It's more, um, might be a bit more basic than if there was a student, a science student talking to a researcher or a, um, uh, another, a, a producer perhaps speaking to a researcher. Mm -hmm. And that is what we're aiming for. We're aiming for at SPARK. SPARK is, did I tell you what the acronym stands for? I don't know if we did that. I don't know it's, if we uh, did. It's, uh, it stands for Students Promoting Awareness of Research Knowledge. So we're promoting awareness. We're trying to get a broad, trying to get uh, information out to a broad group of stakeholders. So it's very broad, and the the researchers, I believe, I've, I've certainly seen this, and students do too. They, they embrace, they understand that the students are trying to help them spread the word. Mm -hmm. And it's a good investment of their time. I think they realize that too by, by spending, or speaking to journalists, even though it, it may seem at the time to be a challenging investment of time it's a good one because the uh, it's like speaking to thousands and thousands of people with um by speaking to one person and i think the i think researchers understand that so your question about do we give the students a crash course what we give them in we give them a crash course in journalism <laughs> and because we don't have any other journalism program at guelph so we, uh, we give them a crash course in journalism. Here's how you write an inverted pyramid story with all the important information at the top and the, the less, not, not the unimportant, but the less important information at the bottom, just in case it gets chopped off. And they learn how to write that. And then so, and by doing so, they're focusing on the so what and who cares, and they keep driving the researcher through the course of their interview towards the 
uh, help me understand how this is uh, applicable to the public. So you write for a number of different uh, publications, including the Ontario Grain Farmer magazine, um, and you have the current uh, cover story of our next issue about your trip to Brazil. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, agriculture in Brazil? I learned Brazil is amazingly progressive. Mm-hmm. I was there as part of, uh, I'm the president of an organization called the International Federation of Agricultural Journalists, and uh you folks are part of that as well, by virtue of being part of the Eastern Canada Farm Writers Association. And, and we're all part of this organization, uh, 5,000 of us, 5,000 mm-hmm. members. That's a f- lot when mm-hmm. you think about it, like that there's that many journalists focused on agriculture. Well, it makes you realize how big the industry is and how important it is in, in a lot of countries. And it's also an eye-opener for, I mean, it's an eye-opener for us, and we're actually in the business. When you say to someone who isn't, hey, we have an association of agricultural journalists. I did that on the weekend when I was going through um, security at uh, crossing at Detroit. I was going to a conference. Where are you going? To an agricultural journalist conference. <laughs> what is that? You know, it sounds like you're making it up, but um, you can't make up something like that. <laughs> no, I had that same uh, situation when I went to the Ag Media Summit when it was held in Buffalo a few years ago. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what I said. And they're like, really? And I'm like, here, look, here's my registration paper that I happen to have just sitting there. And they're like, oh, this is actually a thing. <laughs> well, and it's almost, you know, even though press cards have become obsolete in some disciplines, they're not in ours because I think it's, you know, sometimes you can still use your press card. Anyway, so I went to Brazil as part of a program called Exposure for Development. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's this particular one is sponsored by De Laval. Syngenta's been involved in the past. We've had, uh, we've had some good sponsorship from companies who are interested in, uh, it's a select group of journalists you have to apply. And you, you go and you see, uh, you see things that uh, you may have some understanding of or some vague understanding of or you think you do and it's meant to expose journalists to uh, the development of other countries mm-hmm. it sounds like you know usually we think of development as a um, developing countries type of situation but in this case it's actually to develop journalists more so than the countries so we went on a tour of the uh, of the dairy and part of the grain farming areas also went to the main port, which is called Santos, to see how to see how uh, massive the scale is, and it, it's really amazing. The key here is that Brazil has figured out how to grow two crops in the same time that we grow one. Hmm. They call this a serafina, the second the second corn crop is what it mostly is. Sometimes it's soybeans, but usually it's soybeans first, and then and then corn. And that's why their exports, it's, you know, through research, uh, that's one of the reasons that their exports have gone from basically at a st- being at a standstill to becoming one of the world leaders in, f- in just 40 years. It's because they've figured out how to do this second crop. They've got the favorable conditions for it. And they've got the land, uh, sometimes to their own detriment, because they, they were getting a bit aggressive with rainforest mm-hmm. <laughs> deforestation. But they know now that uh, that's not going to wash with the rest of the world. And there are so everybody, everybody there, farmers, commodity groups, exporters, 
talk so much about uh, environmental protection hmm. and how they're trying really hard to change the, through some legislation, but also just through a cultural change to change the mindset hmm. about, um, about preserving the environment. So there actually is action on that, not just talk or PR that you might assume if people are trying to just, you know, increase their exports. There is, there's a, uh, there's a quota that they have now um, about how much preservation has to take place Mm -hmm. on land that's being developed and even land that has already been developed. If you're in a certain zone, you have to bring it back to a certain level of deforestation. Mm -hmm. And I talk a little bit about that in the, uh, in the cover story that I wrote, um, but there, th- that's, that's very perceptive, is how do you make sure this isn't just a PR exercise? Because for sure, there's some PR around this, because there's been some very bad PR yeah. uh, leading up to this. Um, so they know they've got to, they have to change things. They know that because uh, places like Europe have open discussions about um, not exporting from Brazil if they don't clean up their act. And uh, as we know, we don't really want any export. No country wants some of its main export um, destinations to be influenced by bad PR or by a reality of uh, we're not looking after the environment. So I, 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 can, I can tell you, you know, we, the farms we visited, you can see a big uh, like a riparian strip along the along streams. Um, the, a lot of times, the quota that they have to have for uh, forested land—that's where they—that's where they have it. The long streams and along rivers that go through their property um, to try to uh, negate some of the negative environmental uh, aspects of um, not having any trees. So there, we saw evidence of it. We saw evidence of them working towards it. And when we talk about exports from Brazil, has there been an impact in that country in terms of, we talk a lot about the China-U.S. trade war and how that's impacted soybean prices here in Canada. How has Brazil been coping or what's been sort of the impact on their exports? Well, it sure hasn't hurt their exports. <laughs> they, uh, you know, so much of Brazil is, uh, there's hardly any government support there for agriculture, for agricultural development. And they're so proud of that, that, that it's all, and, you know, I mean, in some cases it's made it harder for them, but it's also really opened the door for uh, private investment. And in that case, they, uh, the private investors, the companies, are keeping a very close watch on where these markets are opening up. You know, we, we were there, um, so we were there in uh, April. Things were just, and that's the end of harvest for um for their uh, fall crop because they're in the southern hemisphere, so they're backwards to us. So it was just evolving, and all these it, we were there at an exciting time when when this, the, the, all the tariffs, the U.S. and China fight, and then along you know canola was coming at the same time here, and it's a time when if you have uh, the opportunity, I think to kind of swoop in, and we've seen this before that. Um, some people's opportunities, export opportunities, are based on other people's export unfortunate situations. So Brazil has lots to backfill. And as part of IFAJ, you've had the opportunity to travel to lots of other different places around the world. Can you share with us some of those other experiences and maybe what are some of the locations you've been to that have really stuck out in your experience? 
going to um, South Africa, I think, was the was the most eye-opening experience for me. Seeing what a big country it is, seeing the challenges they have, seeing how they are working hard in the face of adversity, like you just wouldn't believe, drought-wise, and um, the whole land ownership question. Uh, that was, I think, the biggest uh, the biggest eye-opener for me, and that they are uh, farming what we would consider perhaps to be wildlife, but to them, it's a form of conservation, and it's a form of making money. And like any new culture that you go into, you really have to have your mind open and try to take your personal, perhaps North American lens or European lens or wherever you happen to be from, off and try to realize the challenges that farmers have. I think we as journalists, that's what we do all the time. I mean, with the stories we write are... So you know what's what's your biggest challenge is always one of the story one of the lines that I uh, that I have and people like to talk about those because sometimes they think that uh, via the media there might be some solutions come forward. And you um, also write for Real Agriculture, but as well a lot of consumer facing um, pieces. And you have your Urban Cowboy column. Can you tell us a bit about that column and maybe what type of feedback you've seen uh, from that consumer or non farming audience? Well, the non-farming audience, going back 30 years, has an interest in agriculture. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Um, research is always an exciting way to make people more interested in agriculture because there's always something new in research. Mm -hmm. um, but through, um, so my Urban Cowboy column started in at, at what used to be the Guelph Mercury. Well, I got a call one day and they said, uh, one day, this would be many years ago, and they said... Uh, so we know we see what you're doing up there at the university. You're trying to communicate widely to uh, to the public. How about writing a column? I said, Oh, well, okay. I I don't I haven't written columns before, but I'll be glad to give it a try. Yeah, we want we want an opinion column. And as a journalist, you're not usually used to giving your opinion. You're mm -hmm. used to giving writing about other people's opinions. I said, Okay, I'll give it a go. They said, Okay, um, 600 words by Monday. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> wow. And that was as much direction as I got. No topic. No. Uh, this is what sort of the hot issue is of the day. They assumed that I would know these things. And, you know, I know what the news is, but uh, opinion-wise, that was a little bit different. So mm -hmm. that was that was a learning experience for me. And then they also said, oh, yeah, and come up with a name. So, <laughs> hmm, okay, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm from the city, so I'm an urban person, and I'm going to be writing about rural country things. And uh, what's topical? Well, you know, and, and this is this is when um, the whole cowboy movement was just getting mm -hmm. off the ground again, with John Travolta and the urban cowboy and everything. Mm -hmm. You must think there's some resemblance between. <laughs> do, do, you're laughing. No, I think I think so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's where the whole urban cowboy huh? thing came from, and it was. Uh, so I said, okay, urban, urban. I'm from the city, cowboy. I'm writing about rural things. Let's see if. Uh, if that'll stick, and uh, and it did, and so it it kind of has carried on, and it was um, everybody kind of needs a shtick, I think, and that was that was mine, and it carried on when the uh, Guelph Mercury editor went to the Toronto Star, he is a he's a Texas A and M graduate of, of journalism, just so happened he's a Canadian, but his folks were down in Texas, so he went to university there and got his journalism degree came back to Canada, 
is now uh, went from the Mercury to to the Torstar chain because they were owned. The Mercury was owned at the time by Torstar, and has always had an interest in agriculture, owing significantly to his A and M A and M roots. And he said to me through the years, he went there many years ago to the Toronto Star, and he said, you know, I I want to do something because I think it's important that people broadly know about agriculture and it seems like they know less and less. They want to know more and more, but they know less and less. What can we do? And so, you know, we thought about it, thought about it. And this was over several years. And and so finally we came up with this idea. Um, We started a program two years ago called The New Farm. And it was, the idea was to bring forward innovation on the farm and how that was being used. And at the time, we were working with uh, the metro chain, which is very urban. And so we went to them with this idea because they were both owned by the Torstar. And we said to the editor of that uh, paper, we want to write about, uh, about innovation. And they said, no, you want to write about food. Hmm. You want to write about how food comes from farms that are using innovation. And if you follow that trajectory, we'll be okay. Because people want to know about farms, but they want to know how it relates to their food. And they want to know what farmers are doing innovation-wise to grow that food. So when you write an agriculture story, you're writing a food story. And I said, if we can reach three million people, I'll do that. (laughs) Because to me, that was pretty important. Mm -hmm. So we tried that on a 21-week experiment, and it went really well. And uh, so we worked out some more logistics about it. So I think either in June or maybe July, but probably June, we're going to be bringing it back to the, to the star and mm-hmm. to the star's new network, which is much more expansive. And there's going to be a major digital component to it. And scoop, scoop, scoop. It's going to be called <laughs> Sheer Grit. Oh. And the whole idea here is to talk about, and we just kind of mentioned this, challenges and opportunities that farmers are embracing right now, right across the country. Do you think there's a bit of a disconnect between the technologies that farmers want to embrace that consumers are willing to accept? One of the other articles, for example, that you wrote for our June-July issue of the magazine is on GM wheat and some new advances in that. But GM wheat is not commercially available anywhere because there is that consumer resistance to it. So what have you noticed in that front? I've noticed that um, certain activist groups have been very successful in getting people's attention. And I think agriculture has its work cut out for it to do the same. However, I think there are great stories that can be told to consumers to help them be more familiar with, uh, with, with some of these topics. I've always thought it's much better to be in front of a story than behind it. It's much better to be proactive than reactive. That's what I plan to do with some of these stories that I'll be writing for the Sheer Grit stories, the, the Sheer Grit series, is to get out in front of these stories and explain what some of the technologies are. In this case, it'll in some cases, it will be to explain what's already out there. In other cases, it will be to explain what's coming down the line. So we'll be looking at advances in technology such as the use of GPS and self-driving tractors, that type of technology? Are we looking more on the food science side? The, the key will be 
at least one of the keys, because this is what research from our friends at the uh, Canadian Centre for Food Integrity have discovered, is that consumers are most concerned about the rising cost of food. So, farmer that I'm interviewing, what are you doing with technology to try to become more efficient? How is technology helping you become more efficient? Because more efficient, and I don't think this is widely known or understood by the public, a more efficient farmer will potentially result in lower food costs. And this has been, this has been the experience through the, through the ages with uh, processors and manufacturers saying to farmers, you have to keep the price of food down. You have to keep your costs down. So farmers are very efficient at using research and technology to to be efficient, to be um, to be better producers, to be more sustainable, to help keep their costs down so those can be passed on. That's for sure one of the areas that I'm going to be talking about in these stories is what farmers are doing. And, and in many cases, it's using technology. In some cases, it's using tried and true methods that have that they've always used, but that people don't know about. But as we know, one of the reasons they use technology is because it's it helps them be uh, more profitable, more profitable and more efficient. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess changing gears a little bit, but it sounds like you're pretty busy with all the things you do. But you also have time. Uh, you have your own band called the GMOs. Um, and I some farmers or some other agricultural journalists might know a little bit about uh, that or heard you play. But can you tell us a bit about the GMOs? Yeah, sure. So the GMOs, it's uh, four of us. We all graduated from the University of Guelph at one time or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, the GMOs, in this case, stands for the Genetically Modified Orchestra. <laughs> and we were so named by Peter Hannum. Peter Hannum, soybean pioneer, who uh, we were having we were having a, um, a meeting at a bar with him one day. And, uh, All great uh, ideas yeah. happen at a bar, right? <laughs> Whether you're a journalist or a musician. Well, it kind of goes together. Uh, and uh, we were talking about, uh, because his, his son Rob has played with us as well. This is the 20th anniversary of the GMOs. And so we, uh, we play at a lot of conferences mm-hmm. and some dances. And we always play at the annual meeting of the farm raiders. So it's, it's, it's been a good, it's one of the ways I got through university was by playing uh, playing music, usually in bar bands, on weekends. And uh, so it's just kind of carried on. And you also have one of your songs in the Before the Plate movie. We do. We um, so, so Dylan Shear, the um, filmmaker who put together Before the Plate with, with the team, um, got to know us because, again, the good old Guelph connections. <laughs> when he was a student, he, he came to talk to us about... Um, did, because the, the drummer in our band, Len Kahn, is, uh, has his own marketing company. So we met, we met with Dylan, and he said, uh, do you have any ideas for how I could market my movie? So Len had a few ideas, and one thing led to another. And uh, it wasn't with the intent of him using our, our uh, song, but we're very glad that he did. Little child and a daddy Looking out upon the yard to her and says I'm sorry you're gonna have to work so hard it's gonna be that's a neat connection to before the plate yeah yeah well it comes in the credits I can't say 
that uh, it opens with us playing. I, I, I can't say that, but when you when you watch the credits, and the credits are very, uh, when you look at the credits, you realize how many people it takes to make a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, it just goes on and on, but it allows us to have our song there behind it. So, And I guess people who've gone to Guelph know just the reputation that Guelph has, but even outside now of the ag community, the University of Guelph is getting a lot of publicity lately. Like they were just ranked, I think, the best food on campus, um, you know, and that made made headlines. People were like, "Really?" And I was like, "Well, that kind of makes sense because you know you're you're focused a lot on food and, and agriculture there." But um, what have you noticed in your past thirty years at the university in terms of how its reputation has grown? Well, Guelph made a commitment. You know, there was a time, I guess maybe five ish years after I'd been there, where. Guelph was really, and this is before agriculture had really become uh, what it is now as part of the part of the um, uh, the, the way it, the way the public has embraced agriculture now and just wanting to know about it. This was before that, and Guelph was really trying to decide what uh, where where are we going to put our focus. And uh, the vice president at the time, and the uh, the president, they thought a lot about it. The vice president of research. And we had this great connection with O'Mafra, and we said, and, and, and it was said, uh, decided that uh, we really need to focus on agriculture because this is where things are going. And so it was really their their um, their long vision. Um, this is particularly uh, Dr. Larry Milligan and uh, Alistair Summerlee, who came after him as president. Larry was the vice president of research, and that commitment because there were. There's other great ag universities in Canada. Uh, in Ontario, that commitment that they made, and then with Ridgetown becoming part of the, of the campus, it was, it was really in all the research stations that came along with it. It really solidified Guelph's ability to put together a multidisciplinary approach to agriculture. And that was one of the big changes, is that uh, when, when Guelph said, yes, we're going to be Canada's Food University. That's more of a modern version of what was said back a couple of decades ago, but that's really what they meant. We're going to make a commitment to this, and we're going to uh, we're going to help people understand people of Ontario because through the OMAFR agreement, we're going to help them understand how um, the support for agriculture in the field and in the lab and in uh, research stations is really benefiting them. And that's the change that I've seen. You know, Guelph has gone from um, from Muyu, which it always <laughs> which it will always be because it has to be. You know, you have to have that basic that basic research. But the development of uh, programs like uh, Food from Thought that the that the uh, federal government put um, 70 plus million dollars into and the development of the new uh, and the the new alliance with the the new look alliance i guess with the uh, ministry of agriculture food and rural affairs that is broader um and and f- but at the same time focused on uh, on innovation it's really it's really changed things and i i think uh, people see also the, the many aspects of food that are, that agriculture does, just like just like this editor at, uh, in downtown Toronto said, this is really about food, mm-hmm. and we can be Guelph's, we can be Canada's food university, with all the uh, 
with all the implications that come with it of, of technology and agriculture and environment and sustainability and marketing and business, all those, all those things. And I'm only touching on a few that, uh, that come along with it. And just saying, hey, we're, gonna, we're making a commitment to this and we're going to do it. So if anyone would like to follow along with you uh, online, how would they find you on social media and uh, your website? So on Twitter, I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter at, uh, at The Urban Cowboy. I maintain a blog where I park most of my stories that is also The Urban Cowboy. And hopefully um, uh, in the Toronto Star, this uh, Sheer Grit column will happen. But also at the university, uh, myself and the Spark students produce the research magazine for the university. And students are very active in uh, places like, uh, like your magazine. They'll have stories there occasionally. There's stories in other commodity publications. And uh, social media-wise, they're U of G Spark. Um, so there's lots of... Uh, Lots of places to put stories. There's lots of interest in these stories. And uh, I don't see that slowing down at all. I'm, I'm very happy about the way the public has responded, is responding to agriculture. I know there's tough, tough questions being asked, but there are answers. And that's, uh, that's a great thing for a journalist to be able to bring forward. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Owen. Uh, it was very interesting, and I'm uh, sure we look forward to seeing your new column come out in the Toronto Star. So do I. Thanks. Thanks, Megan. And thanks, Rachel. We are uh, joined on the podcast today by our chair, Marcus Hurl. Um, and Marcus, to start us off, what are you hearing uh, about planting progress right now? Yeah, planting progress, it's uh, something really challenging this year. We uh, we can basically generalize planting progress in very, very slow. So what uh, I'm saying here, it's not only uh, Eastern Ontario, it's uh, not only Southern Ontario, it's everybody. What that uh, it's saying, uh, farmers are getting really stressed out of when and how they're going to put this crop in. We know that uh, the soil conditions are way worse than farmers think they they can go and plant. I think farmers are pushing it to put a crop in. Even uh, myself, I have to say, I mudded some of the corn in because uh, of the uh, the varieties of uh, corn that I have that. Uh, I want to plant and uh, need to get out there. It's going to be a struggle to the finish line this year. Um, the weather patterns are not changing at all. It seems like a repeat uh, from week after week after week. And uh, it's going to be a very, very slow process of getting this done uh, because we're now um, basically end of May. Uh, we're going to go into June. Farmers are contemplating of switching up to maybe early varieties, uh, changing to soybeans. Plus, on top of it, the winter wheat crop uh, that was planted last fall is still struggling. Farmers have taken decisions of putting other crops in, but it's going to be uh, still a guessing game of when that's going to happen. 
And Marcus, some people right now, when you're talking about changing their planting options, they have limited options when it comes to the different kinds of seeds that they can actually plant. Yes, uh, that's uh, unique to our Ontario environment that we're in because of the seed treatment regulation, uh, Class 12, is putting uh, a real curveball in the decision-making of this spring because farmers that do want to change up seed, uh, first of all, their options are somewhat limited because of the regions that they're in in the province for, uh, for the neonic-treated seed access. Second of all, the options of seed that's actually now available to the farmers is going to be limited uh, because most of the seed that's coming in uh, from the U.S. as earlier varieties are neonicotinoid-treated seeds. And uh, if a farmer does not have his paperwork done in the realistic term, they cannot plant it this spring. Who is going to be able to go out there and dig holes and uh, do their paperwork in proper time and proper manner? I don't think that there is anybody out there that's going to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. So what uh, we've done, we've approached through Grain Farmers Ontario or the Ministry of Environment, uh, uh, I'm going to say the minister and staff, plus also Minister Ardeman, uh, there I'm going to have a conference call with him this afternoon to address this issue again because farmers need to have seed to plant a crop and to have a revenue because we are, in a, first of all, in a very different marketplace than we were last year on the grain sale side. We cannot afford to lose more money because of not accessing the proper seed that's required for putting in a crop. And Marcus, can you tell us a little bit more? There's an announcement just made um, about government support for a Dawn forecasting app. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, sir, I certainly can. Um, so uh, it's been something that's been in process uh, as a research project was uh, put forward. And it's in collaboration with um, uh, a, uh, the federal government, provincial and the Grain Farmers Ontario. It's a dawn forecast tool that's going to be available um, whenever the research project is completed. It's to highlight the times of the year when the, uh, the infestation of dawn is more prone to happen in specific environments, in uh, specific areas, and farmers can use that as a prediction tool of when they should use, first of all, fungicides, or um, maybe even if it kind of shows that certain areas have a more higher rate of infection, maybe even look at different seed options and stuff like that. It's kind of a tool that's going to look at everything in its way. And Marcus, it's good that we're getting some support from the government in, with that uh, Dawn tool and open to being uh, open to discussions about the seed treatments. But we need some more support from our government, especially in light of the fact that the U.S. farmers now are getting additional aid and we're still in the midst of the trade war and, and tariff implications. Um, what is your reaction to that latest news about U.S. aid for farmers? Yeah, well, this one is uh, very dear to my heart because it's hitting everybody's bottom line uh, this coming year moving forward. 
As the USDA has just announced yesterday, uh, another $16 billion aid package to the U.S. farmer. And it's not only for soybeans, it's for all commodities. And uh, there's even a buyback program in there. So what this is going to do, uh, this is going to put more pressure on the, uh, the futures market because the U.S. farmer is protected on the back end. Our government, the Canadian government, needs to step up to the plate as soon as possible, do similar programs, have options for the farmers to address the market shortfall. We cannot wait until the farmers are struggling and cannot continue farming their business because uh, we are in a so-called new world of grain trading and marketplace where tariffs and market disruptions are the norm. And if we do not have the back from our government, we will not be able to sustain our industries moving forward. Well, uh, thank you for that update today from the chair, Marcus, uh, and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Grain Talk podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests this week, Owen Roberts and Marcus Hurl. If you like what you've heard today on the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And remember, five-star iTunes reviews help us grow our audience.